Hello, this is Andy Bannister, the director of the Solar Centre for Public Christianity, and I'm delighted to endorse and uh, recommend the Ministry of Deeper Waters Apologetics. I've been hugely impressed watching the work that Nick has done over the years, building up the website and the podcast, the quality of the guests that he gets onto there. And I love the way that uh, the ministry challenges and encourages both Christians and those who don't have a Christian faith to really think through the claims of the gospel. I'm also impressed by just how Christ-centered and Nick is and all that he does. It's a desire to see people encounter Jesus Christ and the life-transforming truth of the gospel. So uh, more strength to them. It's been a privilege to know Nick over the years, and I hope Deeper Waters goes from strength to strength. And if you haven't yet discovered it, check out the website deeperwatersapologetics.com for yourself. You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, no exception again. And we're continuing talking about Autism Awareness Month. Now, last week, we answered the question, who's your favorite guest to have on? Because I did have my favorite on, and I'm sure my guests will understand today when I say my favorite guest to have on was when I had my wife on the show. No one else competes with that one. But we do have some great guests today here because now we're t- not talking about two people with Asperger's who are, married, who are married, but one who has it and one who doesn't. And we brought back one of our favorites on here, someone who's been on the show. I believe this is going to be his fourth time, so he must really like us a lot or something. And uh, that's Dr. Hugh Ross from Reasons to Believe, who is on the spectrum. And his wife, Kathy, is with us this time, who is what we call a neurotypical, not on the spectrum. And I, I'm seeing them here right now on a webcam. It, it, it's simply adorable seeing them together here. But here is a, some information about them. Astronomer and best-selling author Hugh Ross travels the globe speaking on the compatibility of advancing scientific discoveries with timeless truths of Christianity. His organization, Reasons to Believe, is dedicated to demonstrating via a variety of resources and events that science and biblical faith are allies, not enemies. Working alongside Hugh is his wife, Kathy. She holds a master's degree in English from the University of Southern California, worked in communications there, and later taught at Pasadena City College. In addition to editing Hugh's books, Kathy serves as a vice president at RTB, overseeing multiple ministry departments. So, Dr. Ross and Mrs. Ross, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. And Thank now, you. normally I start asking a bit about how y'all got to be doing what you're doing, but that's kind of a whole story here about how you are kind of cross each other's paths, how you got married, and what's it like being in a sort of mixed marriage of sorts. <laughs> so, um, tell us a little bit story about how you two came to get to know each other. Well, start, you want to tell her. I... <laughs> well, I was at uh, Caltech, and uh, 
there was this professor there who was a Christian. Uh, I was uh, leading two Bible studies, and he says, Hugh, you need to attend this other Bible study. I said, Dave, I'm way too busy. Mm-hmm. Well, he talked to me the next day. He said, I called him and I told him that you're coming. So I was a little bit upset at Dave because I, my schedule was so full, but I rode my bike to the Bible study. And when I walked in, it's like everybody knew I was from Caltech, and I couldn't figure out why. <laughs> it was very obvious. <laughs> what, were you wearing like a Caltech T-shirt or something? Oh, no, it was worse than that, Nick. He was wearing plaid pants. They were very high above his ankles because, you know, you don't want to get your cuffs caught in the bike chain. Mm-hmm. Mustard-colored socks, uh, a striped shirt that totally mismatched. He was bald on top, had his hair wild and sticking out on the sides, and he had ridden up on a bicycle with a bungee cord strapped to his Bible to the back. Now, I showed up there in my... You know, my sports car with the, all the other young professionals in the group, uh, many of whom were, I mean, we weren't proud of our, we didn't have wealth or anything, but, you know, we just considered ourselves to be normal mm-hmm. uh, folks, many of whom, many of my friends in that study were aiming for careers in ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, when when Hugh walked through the door, I mean, we all just kind of chuckled a little bit. And well, I remember they other. asked me, Hugh, where did you buy those clothes? <laughs> I told them I bought my clothes at the supermarket. You know, <laughs> you know, Dr. Ross, I'm remembering when I did my first interview with you about Asperger's, I asked you about the Big Bang Theory, the show, not the actual scientific theory, and you said, they had to tone it down quite a lot because we're even nerdier than that. Oh, yeah, I'm, that's I'm seeing what you meant by that right now. <laughs> uh, yes, and and Nick, he, of course, mm-hmm. being on the spectrum, he did not make good eye contact. Mm-hmm. But here's what, what impressed me. I was at the Bible study because I really wanted to dig into Scripture. In fact, I had wanted to go to seminary because mm-hmm. I grew up wanting to be a missionary. Mm-hmm. The reason I wanted to be a missionary is because I heard missionary stories of people coming to faith in Christ, not just one or two every few years, but people who were so thrilled to hear the gospel and just would give their lives to Christ and be transformed. And Mm. that's what I wanted to see happen. And I I couldn't think, I didn't see it happening around me in church. And and I, I thought, okay, so I need to I want to be a missionary. I figured I'd need to go to seminary, but I hadn't figured out how to afford to go to seminary. I, mm-hmm. I did have a fellowship, a scholarship, and then a fellowship to get my, uh, my my master's degree and then a college teaching credential. So I was serious in this Bible study and really wanting to dig in because my desire was to somehow be able to lead people to Christ. But there was a there was a little bit of a blockage for me, and that was. Um, when I was in college, somewhere along the way, my my beloved brother, whom I looked up to and leaned on for most of my life, he basically told me that science proved to him that the Bible isn't true, that the Bible just wasn't scientifically credible, and he was going to pursue other truth. That threw me for a loop, and I just thought, wow, I I don't know how to answer him. 
I had not studied much science, and I just had always assumed that somehow the Bible would be credible scientifically and otherwise. So you can imagine how stunned I was when this science guy walked into the Bible study and sat down with us, and when we opened the scripture, the thing that impressed me immediately was the solidity of Hugh's faith that this book is the Word of God. Mm-hmm. So I thought, hmm, I need to ask him some questions. So after the, the study was over, the formal part of the study, and we broke up for just a little time of refreshments, I made a beeline to, to Hugh. I introduced myself, and I said, I'm, I can see you're a scientist. <laughs> that was a little presumptuous. Sorry about that, Hugh. Anyway, I said, I, I really would like to know how you as a scientist handle the, um, for example, the opening chapters of, of Scripture, uh, how, how do you understand that? And I, you know, I'd sure like to hear your explanation. So his immediate response startled me because he, he said, well, that actually that opening chapter of the Bible is what really arrested my attention and actually led to, it, it played a part in my coming to faith in Christ. Now I'm really stunned, and I asked for a a little explanation, if he wouldn't mind. And so within a few minutes' time, he was kind enough to take me through, always looking down at the floor, mind you. But he he took me through the the first chapter of Genesis and into the second chapter and just kind of explained very briefly his perspective on how it matched the the findings. You know, it wasn't like this is the only way to, to believe this text, but this is how it lines up if you need to to know it harmonizes beautifully well i was so thrilled i ran out the door jumped my car and drove to my parents house and and just said mom dad i i met this guy who really he he explained to me how science and scripture actually go together that that the scripture is credible from a scientific perspective from i mean i'm talking to a guy from caltech and they were just so happy and thought that was wonderful um and so that was that was our meeting that was our first first time of of meeting do you all remember what the bible study was about we were in the book of was it ephesians yeah, the way the Bible study worked is because yeah. it was a mixture of uh, everybody was a young professional, uh, about half of them were married and the rest of us were single, uh, but each one of us would take turns leading the study. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, we would pick a text that we wanted to explain to the rest of the group, and then we would break up and discuss it. And so, uh, depending who was teaching, we'd be going through a different text, but I think the day you arrived, Kathy, uh, it was a New Testament text. Yeah. Um, I I, it was think, Ephesians. I think yeah, it was we were Ephesians. in Ephesians, right. the first chapter. Mm. Right. Yeah, I, I'm kind of curious, Dr. Ross, and she said you were looking down. I know that's something we do on the spectrum, that eye contact isn't our favorite thing in the world, but I'm also curious, was it just, was it also be, not only because you were talking with another person, but you think it could have also been you were talking to a female? Could that have made it even harder to make eye contact? No, I didn't make eye contact with anybody. Okay. I mean, uh, for example, at Cal, you know, the thing about astronomy is it seems to attract people who are intelligent and on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, I thought I was normal because uh, everybody else that I would dealt with at Caltech, they weren't making eye contact either. In fact, I can remember a big conversation we had in the hallway at the astronomy uh, lab building, and there were eight of us very vigorously talking to one another. All eight of us were just staring directly at the floor. So, <laughs> There's there one professor I wanted to talk to there, one researcher, and uh, he was so far in the spectrum. He just yelled at me and said, get out. I can't talk to you. And he mm. says, but I don't like you. I just can't handle a human being in my office here. Mm. Uh, he would give a lecture in front of a thousand people, but he couldn't engage people one-on-one uh, -on -one or one-on-two. So I learned just to stay away from it. Mm. You know, um, Kathy, I'm not sure if you know about the story, but I found out about Dr. Ross being on the spectrum because my father-in-law is Michael Lacona, and we'd heard this story about mm. how... Um, the the astronomy community seems to seems to attract people on the spectrum. He was at a conference once, and he said, "Well, Hugh Ross is here. I'll ask him if he knows anyone on the spectrum." So he's that was Doctor Ross. Uh, my daughter and son-in-law, they both from have Asperger's, and they've heard that there's a lot of astronomers who have a condition. Do you know anyone on the spectrum there? Just I have Asperger's. <laughs> Dr. Ross, did, did you know at the time of this Bible study that you have a condition called Asperger's? No, I didn't know. In fact, it was a few decades afterwards before I found out. Uh, I think I was in my late 50s when a friend of ours who's a therapist, she says, Hugh, uh, I've noticed you can't talk to my husband without colliding with him all the time. Uh, you ever when you're of, hiking or walking. Well, we were in a supermarket. I just kept yeah. bumping into him. Um, and, you know, when I wasn't talking, I, I could maintain control of my body just fine. Mm. And she said, uh, yeah, have you ever thought that you might be on this spectrum? And I said, no. And she said, well, why don't you go online and take some tests? She recommended one test and said, if you get a score 24 to 50, uh, you're on the spectrum. You're less than that. You're not. So I took the test, and I was 48 out of 50. Mm -hmm. A few more tests, and said, yeah, I guess I'm on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. I, I'm curious, when she made that suggestion to you, did it seem like an insert or anything at the time, or what? No, I just said, well, uh, maybe this is something I need to look into, and maybe this explains why I've had problems uh, in our relationship, uh, not just with my wife, but with my sons. So I said, you know, I, I need to find out, uh, yeah, our staff. Mm -hmm. I said, I need to check this out. This might help. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we'll get into that story later on because it's after you got married yeah. and such. So, yeah. Kathy, you go home and you tell everyone about this guy that you've met and such. And now, I'm curious, did your mother kind of suspect that there would be something more going on here? Because mothers sometimes have that intuition. Yes, but no one in this case suspected anything because at the time... Hugh was not even a candidate. I never even considered him a candidate for a relationship for multiple reasons. Number one, I, I knew that he was here at Caltech on a visa from Canada, a, a postdoctoral study visa. So my assumption was after three, three years, years right. he would be returning to, to Canada or some other part of the world to continue his research. So in that respect, he wasn't a candidate. In another respect, he did not appear to be interested in 
really, you know, dating or, or anything. In fact, there was one young woman in the study that was interested in him, kind of, I saw her trying to pursue him a little bit, and I just thought, no, 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 no. And That's, I had no clue. You know, and he was close, but, you know, <laughs> he, he's interested in, in one, two things only. Number one, he's interested in seeing people come to faith in Christ. Number two, he's interested in his research. But, you know, what appealed to me, I remember after knowing Hugh for a few months, or actually it was probably more like a year, and just watching his life and watching the way he would, you know, take any opportunity to turn the conversation to, you know, spiritual truth and just really share evidence for Christianity with, for his faith with anybody. And I just, I remember saying to God, if there's any way I can be supportive of him in his evangelistic ministry, I want to I want to do that. Mm-hmm. So I remember actually thinking, asking God, how can I be supportive of Hugh and his ministry? And mm-hmm. the first thing that came to mind was by this time I was teaching at, at the college and Hugh was putting together materials to hand out when he was doing. Uh, evangelistic uh, volunteer work for the church. Well, I read some of his materials and I thought, oh no, this is, it was very, uh, very formal language, lengthy. I remember one sentence was an entire paragraph, just clause after clause. And, you know, I'm an English teacher and I'm also working with freshmen and sophomores who, you know, they would not even be able to understand this, this material at all. So I remember having the, uh, the courage to ask you if you would mind my, my editing, uh, some of the materials he was putting together and I wasn't sure what to expect because you know editors and writers are they're a little sensitive about having their stuff worked on but he responded with such humility he was just oh would you would you help so he was willing to accept my help so I rewrote the materials for him and and I thought I wonder if he's going to approve or be mad or whatever. And he looked at what I had done. Oh, this is really good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, well, maybe God will allow me to be a help to him in some way. Mm-hmm. Now, Dr. Ross, let me also ask you all both this. And I don't mean to sound like an intrusive question, but how old were both of you at the time? Uh, I was uh, 28 or 20, 29 when I met Kathy. Yeah, 29. Hmm. 26. Uh, I, I'm fine by interesting because uh, I was 28 when I met Allie and 29 when I married her, nearly 30 and such. So, um, Dr. Rosa, when you had met Kathy the first time, was there any spark of romantic interest for you there in her or...? Well, Kathy was right. I was not looking for any kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. In fact, what Dave told me, says, Hugh, this study is filled with young professionals. Half of them are trying to prepare for ministry. They don't know how to, evangelize, to do evangelism. Mm-hmm. So, uh, my role in the study is to train these people how to be more effective uh, in evangelism. And uh, that was uh, quite a challenge because mm-hmm. uh, I've never done it before. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, you know, I knew I was heading on to go to some other back. I thought I was going to probably go back to Canada. Uh, if not, I was going to go to Europe. So, uh, yeah, I looked at my time there as temporary. And my research at that time was really intensive. I just didn't have time 
uh, for any kind of a relationship. Mm -hmm. But he was open to suggestions about how to improve in his communication. Mm -hmm. That was really something that impressed me deeply. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I think that can be something pretty difficult for us on a spectrum sometimes. Correction is not an easy thing to receive. Right. For anyone, but I think it, it can be even harder on a spectrum. Okay, so you two are, I'd say you, you at this point you both consider each other friends. And yes. You're working together and such. When did it change? Well, uh, let's just say, Nick, you were a lot quicker. You met your wife at 28 or 29, and you married by the time you were 30. Mm-hmm. We were, Hugh was 32, and I was 29 by the time we got married. Mm-hmm. So it took us longer to figure out that there was more than, than friendship. Well, we were friends uh, for a good two years, and what I noticed was that Kathy uh, was getting more involved. She was the one that was most uh, eager to get equipped and become effective in evangelism. And uh, there was a study that I was, because I launched another Bible study, and it was a study filled with a lot of uh, young women uh, who had come out of some really difficult circumstances. And uh, so I thought, you know, I need a woman here to, because often what was happening was counseling sessions after the study was over. So I asked Kathy if she'd be willing to help out, and she did. So we were working together in this study. And um, what I noticed was our people in the study and our friends and people at church, uh, they were even noticing strangers. things. Yeah, even strangers. Because mm-hmm. church would sometimes send the two of us out uh, to visit a couple that was in serious marriage difficulty. Mm-hmm. So we were working together as marriage counselors. And, uh, you know, we'd be talking to this couple, and they would ask us how long we'd been married. And we said, well, we're not even dating. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and after this happened about four times, uh, we began to wonder, I mean, you know, what is it that these people are seeing? Mm-hmm. And uh, then I thought, well, Kathy's not interested. She's given me no signals at all. Um, but I kept sending her uh, things, you know, Bible study notes and stuff, and uh, I just... I thought I was making it clear that I had an interest in her, but she just wasn't picking up on it. And, uh, she was having the same response to me. I just wasn't picking up on anything from her. So uh, I wound up sending her a letter because I said, you know, the only way I'm going to actually be able to communicate how I feel about her is uh, through writing because nothing else is working. So I sent her a letter, and she sent me a letter back. <laughs> The scariest letter you've ever received, right? <laughs> yes, I honestly was excited and confused when I got his letter because, you know, he just said, would like to spend time with you on my day off. I'm like, okay, I'm not sure what this means. I think that means we're, he wants to sort of date me, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, at this point, I realized that I was trying hard not to give clues because I was getting no signals from him I definitely recognized that I was uh, talking about Hugh all the time I remember going on a water ski trip with my relatives one weekend and by the end of the weekend I was so embarrassed because I realized 
my goodness, I talked about Hugh Ross again and again throughout the weekend, and my family was noticing, my relatives were noticing and kind of snickering a little bit because they kept hearing about this Hugh Ross. Well, part of my excitement was that after meeting Hugh and getting answers to my scientific questions and just it revolutionized my my courage, I would say, in talking to my students about Christ or anyone. I would talk to anyone about Christ because I was no longer afraid of the science questions that I assumed would come up. In fact, I had some really intriguing information from Hugh that would get me into conversations and allow me to to take my time to defend the reliability of scripture so for the first time i'm actually having the experience of leading people to seeing them come to faith in christ after you know my sharing with them to me that was the most exhilarating thing i had ever experienced and i was so thankful to god and so excited about you know this change in my own life and grateful for Hugh and, and the influence he had had that allowed this. So I was pretty deeply committed to Hugh, but I, I thought he's not interested in, in a relationship. And, you know, he just, uh, anyway, so the letter came and I'm like, oh, so he is interested, I think, and he at least <laughs> wants to spend time with me. So I think that means he's interested. I wasn't sure. So. As I say, I wrote back and uh, said, you know, here's my here's my phone number. And uh, he had asked me in the letter, but I think, didn't you mention that you wanted to invite me over for dinner? Yeah, I had you over for dinner. Yes. So he invited me over for dinner and made dinner for me. And then I invited him over for dinner and made dinner for him. We had really long conversations about... Uh, each other and our past during those those dinners I had dated many guys and um, you know I just I thought I need to let him know about some of my relationships in the past and how how they went they weren't they didn't always go the way they should but at any rate I thought he needs to know that I've got some baggage some deep hurts from past relationships so that he'll be aware of that and um, he had, and then I found out he had never really dated anyone. I was like, okay, this is, okay. Well, we got a blank slate here. <laughs> that was going to be my very next question. I was saying, so, Doctor Ross, is this, this going to be your first ever romantic relationship and such? And I'm guessing the answer is yes. Well, the only previous things is you know sometimes I would win an award and they would tell me I had to bring someone. So I would ask a girl to go with me uh, to uh, you know an event twice. Uh, but it was it was always just a single uh, event. I never dated a gal twice. Mm-hmm. Kathy was the first woman that I ever dated twice. Mm-hmm. So and it was the only one I was ever serious about. Mm-hmm. The other ones were basically just to fulfill an obligation that I had. Mm-hmm. So and it sounds like in this story that both of you were sending signals to one another, and both of you were oblivious to what the other one was saying. Absolutely. Yes, definitely. You got That's it. That's why it took us so long. I mean, literally, we were doing ministry together, and uh, people were thinking we were a married couple. That went on for, gee, like nine or ten months. Yeah. 
before we figure out well, maybe there's something there. The so. people in our Bible study were kind of giggling because they realized what was happening and that we didn't realize what was happening. So it was kind of a fun thing. Yeah, well, when we kind of announced a war about Allie and I had to start dating, most of my friends were like, yeah, we, uh, we kind of saw this coming. My own ministry partner, when I emailed him, said, said, yeah, I thought I should know. It's just a little change things. I know he's like, I'm going to start dating now. He's like, I knew it. I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I have to say, too, that, uh, you know, I had, I didn't know about, I mean, Asperger's back, back in the day, mm-hmm. there wasn't even a, a name for that. And autism was not even really that well known and uh, understood at all all I knew was that Hugh had unusual deficits when it came to reading body language and Mm -hmm. reading emotions and um, I knew that that would interfere with his ministry but I also knew that whenever I pointed something out to him that could help he would he would write it down on a card and think about it and then he would come back like at the bible study for example he would he would teach and most of the people in the study had just well they had such different backgrounds and i realized that uh, some of the things that he was teaching were, were going right past them so i would just say uh, i remember going outside and just saying hugh it would really help if you gave examples when you describe a, a biblical principle you know provide an example that relates to their life and that will really help and by the way it would really help if you looked a little more like the rest of us and and then they wouldn't just always say well Hugh's just different Hugh's just strange you know and so he said well what what do you mean what should I do and he pulled out a card and and I just gave him some basic notes about you know, the length of his pants, the haircut that he needed, um, don't mix plaids and stripes, wear dark socks, not these bright yellow things. Uh, you know, just I went over some basics like that, and I was trying so hard not to be insulting, but just to say for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of, of having these people receive what you're saying, you just need to take the friction out of it, and this your appearance causes some friction. Well, I was really, I had no idea how he would respond to that, and I was kind of quaking in my boots because I remember one of my boyfriends, I had told him that his tie clashed with his jacket, and he wouldn't speak to me for like a week. So anyway, this was... You know, I thought I'm really being bold here. But the very next week, he went to a department store in Pasadena and went met up with a salesperson there and purchased new pants, new shirts, socks. He got a haircut and came back the next week. And I, everybody in the study was like, whoa, <laughs> whoa. They were so impressed that he would do that, that he would dramatically change his, you know, his normal behavior pattern in order to to have more of an impact 
Well, you also told me not to use so many four and five syllable words. Yeah, we, we worked on language a bit. Yeah. We worked on eye contact. That, that took longer. The eye contact thing took a little longer. That like was about 30 years. That was <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> it was funny because I told him he wanted he needed to look at, at people at their face, you know, at them when he's teaching them. And because uh, we were at this point now, we were also in a Sunday class together, if right. I remember right. And uh, so in the Sunday class, his he would be looking at the wall above their heads and uh, not looking, not making eye contact. So I said, you need to really look at people. So <laughs> the next week, he's, he picked two people to look at. I think, and just he, one. <laughs> I think you, yeah, the first week it was one. And then I said, you gotta, you know, move. Then, so he stared at that person through the whole study and made them so uncomfortable. It was like, oh no, this is not working. So then I told him, look, you need to look at more people, not just one person, but look to the right, look to the left, center, right, left, center, back again. Mm-hmm. And so the next week, his eyes just darted, just darted <laughs> all over the room. You know, now everybody's really like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> so after the class, I'm like, okay, yes, this is great, but you need to do that. Anyway. Well, I'll tell you what was the most difficult thing when I followed her instructions and actually began to look at people and pause and look at someone else. I would completely lose my place and where I was in my, in my teaching. And uh, I would get lost and I realized... Oh, no, I can't actually engage people with eye contact and know where I am in my study at the same time. i got to pick one or the other. So uh, so I figure I'm going to need to develop visuals, uh, not so much for the audience, but in order that I don't lose my place. Um, Kathy, could you repeat again what happened after the whole darting thing? The connection kind of jumped again, so I'd like to have that for the audience. Oh, okay, yes, his eyes were, were darting around the room, which was very unnerving to the people in the class. So I simply met with him afterward and said, well, you certainly did move your, your eyes around more. Um, however, you, you you have to pause when you're looking. Just, you know, count to one or two and before you look at another person. Um, anyway, he... he he had real trouble with that, as he said, because he lost his place. But yeah, he worked on it. I think what impressed me, Nick, is that whatever suggestions I, I made to try to help him be a better communicator, mm-hmm. to connect more with, with his audience, and he would, he would work at it. And that impressed me so much is that he was willing to work at it. So my admiration for him grew. And, you know, when I read scripture and I saw that the kind of the main role of the, the husband is to love his wife and, and critical thing for the wife is to respect her husband. And I thought, you know, that's I could respect. Hugh is the the man that I've the one man I've ever spent time with, you know, consistent time with, and and who who grew in my respect through time. I just the more I knew him, the more I respected him, and and the more I saw his heart, and his heart was fixed on things that were 
enduring things that were eternal not things that were time bound and that just that was so important to me so that drew me to him and even though there wasn't a you know, I don't know that there was a strong physical attraction, especially in, in the beginning. It was more of a just an attraction to the person whom, whom he was. And I just kept thinking, you know, I think and I, the two of us together both kind of came to the conclusion, I think, that we were better together than apart. That's um, true. Dr. Ross, I'm curious, when she gives you suggestions like don't wear plaids with stripes and things like that, and that's what, you're writing them down, but at the same time, it's probably thinking, I'm writing these down, but they really don't make much sense to me. Well, I knew they didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> you know, what she's telling me is it makes sense to everybody else. And when I followed her instructions, I said, wow, she's right. Uh, people exactly. actually feel more comfortable uh, when I'm teaching, when I kind of look like the rest of them. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, I've always chosen what I my clothes and my appearance based on cost. And convenience. So, you know, I would buy pants that uh, were for Army soldiers that would last for 10 years and were dirt cheap. And I thought, well, this is a, an economical way to go. Uh, but I realized, okay, I'm saving a lot of money, but I'm actually causing problems in my communication. Mm-hmm. So... And uh, also noticed that, uh, you know, for me, when I would make meals for people, uh, taste wasn't a factor. What was a factor is that they were healthy and nutritious meals. Um, and she helped me to be, they got to look attractive on the plate. I said, why? And she explained why. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you need to try to make the food a little more flavorful. So, uh she taught me how to be more hospitable and then how to engage because I thought it was really important. I saw this in the Bible. We're all to be hospitable and how hospitality is a tool God gives us to be more effective in evangelism. And so we began actually having people over uh, after we were married. and you know, oh, Even while we were dating. Even while we were dating. You we had, had a nice big dining room table at your place. So we would cook. And have families and, over. And have people over after church. New people at church. We would spot the new people and say, hey, would you like to have lunch? And and so we would go back to your place and fix lunch for them and, and uh, you know, have a spiritual conversation. So you know, this, this gets me wondering also, remember you talk about his place and such. When you walked into like his house or apartment, whatever it was for the first time, did it look really, really different from what you'd normally expect? <laughs> oh, you're laughing. This can't be good. <laughs> you want me to tell? I yeah, gotta tell. Job. Okay, I gotta <laughs> tell you this. In order to have a dining room, he put a dining room table in what was the bedroom of his one-bedroom apartment. And the apartment just happened to have a very large closet. And his mattress for sleeping was in the closet. <laughs> so, so the living room had your typical, it did have a couch and a coffee table. And a lot of books. And stacks of books. And the bedroom had a dining room table and chairs. And he slept in, in the, closet. the closet with his clothes hanging above his head. <laughs> wow. I thought, 
Oh, boy. <laughs> well, I thought it was important to have people over to my place. I wanted the dining room to look right. But, yeah, that meant the only place for me to sleep was the closet. So that's where I slept. So when people came over, we kept the closet door shut so that they would think that was the other bedroom in the place. So... <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, I'm guessing that's probably changed since then, hasn't it? It has changed. Mm-mm. Although the books are still everywhere. Yeah, at this point, uh, Hugh has learned to sacrifice certain things just for the sake of, of his sons. Like, for example, I can tell you, Nick, that our younger son uh, developed an interest in, in drumming. And uh, he became very, very good as a drummer. So when we moved into this house, uh, we instead of furnishing the living room we have a family room which is which is thank god we have the family room where we can actually you know have a couch and chairs and sit together but the living room became the band room so the band room and the telescope room yeah so we keep his telescopes in that room and the drum set and the, the amplifiers and the guitar stands and the keyboard for the now our son no he's he's in grad school now and he's passed his days of, of having the band here but he still got his drums he still too. has his drums stored here and we're just giving him time to you know figure out where he's going to live and where he's going to store them. So the nice thing about Hugh is that just meeting him and getting to know him, and I I became a lot more flexible and adaptable about things. You know, it just, uh, I've learned a lot from Hugh. Things don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be the way everybody else has them. They can be however, whatever works for us. If it's any consolation to you, Kathy, my wife goes crazy with all the books we have around here. I was like, we can't have any more books! We can't have any more books! Um, yeah, we kind of have to. Just, yeah, and the sad thing is, Nick, in our case, I'm a book person too. As you can imagine, I was an English major, right? Yeah. So I love books. So I contribute to the problem almost as much as Hugh does. So I'm talking to Hugh now that, you know, we have all these, we have books here in stacks everywhere, but at the office, his office is filled floor to ceiling. There, thank the Lord, he provided bookcases, floor to ceiling bookcases all around the room. But I said, Hugh, what happens when you retire someday? What do you, what do we do with all those all those books? Well. Well, the drums will be gone. The drums will be gone, he said. So, you know, I guess we'll move. But I thought mainly you'll probably end up donating the library to reasons to believe. Anyway. Now, you'd said that you didn't think there was much physical attraction in relationship and such of a story. And I know it can be awkward for people on the spectrum. I mean, was there any trouble with physical interaction when you were dating and such? Or... I think we decided to just be very patient with each other and I thought he just was didn't want to be touched and because when we weren't dating before we were dating if I would bump Kathy, into him Kathy can you start that again we have the same thing happen again 
Sorry. Okay, so, yeah, I was kind of concerned about it because before we were dating, if I would, like, brush against Hugh when we were working in the kitchen or something, he would sort of pull away. Like, it it was awkward. He would jump back. Like, touch was somehow awkward. But then I noticed that as soon as we were dating, touch was no longer – he didn't, like, pull away. Mm -hmm. And not knowing what this was all about, I just – or, you know, not understanding anything about autism at the time. Mm -hmm. What What I learned later and figured out as we went kind of was that when the relationship is defined we then things become appropriate and it they're not confusing so touch was no longer confusing but he was also very cautious and he wanted to ask before like i remember hugh asked me is it okay with you if we hold hands i said absolutely that's appropriate you know and then he would say at what point you know he would then say is it okay if we hug is it okay if we kiss are you comfortable with that this is what i feel is in my comfort zone right now so i thought okay he is trying to make clear what things mean so that there's no confusion about what this means and within this relationship as it progressed toward i mean i thought it was progressing toward marriage he never really made that abundantly clear so there was a time when i was like i wonder if he's ever really going to propose or if this is going to be a lifelong dating relationship but anyway uh, but we continued oh, we explained that way that. i said you know we, we can't progress a relationship oh because i hadn't met your parents you hadn't met my parents yeah. and i wanted a clear endorsement from your parents I actually, while we were dating, I had her parents over without Kathy being there. Uh, but I made the mistake of serving them Korean chicken livers. Mm. And I didn't realize they had never eaten liver before, so let alone Korean chicken livers. So. <laughs> they were like, he's a little strange. And the other thing is he's Canadian. He grew up in a non-Christian uh, family, never had gone to church. His parents were not believers. And I grew up in America, in fact, in Southern California, in a total Christian cocoon, I would say. And my parents were a little concerned that we were so culturally and personally different that this could be problematic. Well, I saw that they were concerned just how different we were. So that was one reason why I was being cautious. Yeah, so, but I really wanted their approval before moving the relationship forward, and I wanted my parents to get to know uh, Kathy. And you know, they're up in Canada, so we had some phone calls. But I really wanted them to be able to meet her personally, and so I was reluctant to propose to her until there was that face-to-face contact between Kathy and the parents. But you know, I was having uh, visa issues at the time, so. Uh, it, it was just very difficult. Now, Dr. Ross, it, it seems kind of surprising me, but it seems like before I was talking about the physical aspect of relationship, it seemed like you might actually have been the one who was more aggressive in this end than, than, than Kathy was. Well, once I found out that I was on the spectrum, you know, a lot of people came to me and said, I got a daughter, a son is on the spectrum. Uh, they don't like to be touched. Mm-hmm. And I remember my parents saying that to all their friends, don't touch you. He doesn't like to be touched. He doesn't like to be hugged. I remember. And uh, 
It's not that they don't like to be touched, it's that they can't interpret what the touch means. Mm. So when we were dating, uh, I wanted to make sure that I was very clear about you know, Understand. what, you know, understanding what the physical contact's all about. So I tell people, it's not that people on the spectrum don't like to be touched, is that they have difficulty interpreting what it means and be explained what it means, uh, then it's going to be okay. Yeah. Uh, I tell people uh, it's quite odd that we've gone for the five love languages together, and uh, one of my love languages is physical touch. But, but it only applies to Ali. I don't really want anyone else touching me. And right. Ali's kind of like my guardian, in fact, especially since I've got scoliosis. I've got a steel rod on my spine. Oh, and wow. So, so uh, if someone gives me a pat on the back, she knows I'm immediately awkward with it and oh. says, don't touch him on the back. He's got a steel rod there. He doesn't like that. Now, Ali can give me a nice, gentle back rub, and that's fine and yes. such. But anything else, no, I, I don't want other people touching me too much right. besides her. Right. Nick, I don't know if you had problems with this, but Hugh Hugh didn't actually know how, for example, he didn't know how to kiss really well. So it was kind of interesting to try to, I felt like, you know what, we're going to learn together how to relate to each other physically. So we, we just committed to being really patient and you know, kind of We're still working going on along, that, really. you know, so it, it's, to me, that, that's been the, one of the good things about our relationship is just trying to, I thought, you know, we, we need to teach each other how we want to be loved and how we want to, what, what seems good to us, what's, you know, what's uh, endearing and, and, and Kathy, what's not. It's gotten a lot better since we... <laughs> spectrum yeah I, mean, those I know years what i'm we feeling know, yeah uh, it was confusing because i you know he didn't know how to interpret my my feel i guess the the challenge nick and i don't know if you've seen this in your relationship with Allie, but Hugh cannot read my feelings mm-hmm. now god prepared me for this relationship in the sense that my mom who's not on the spectrum or wasn't on the spectrum but she just by her personality or nature or whatever, she had a really hard time reading my feelings all the time that I was growing up. My dad was able to much better than my mom was. But so I was used to being loved. I, she loved me, but she just couldn't understand my feelings. So I guess it wasn't so foreign to me when I married someone who had trouble understanding or reading my feelings but my i also was also much more emotionally uh up and down and the nice thing about hugh was that he was so steady he was steady very uh upbeat and and solid and i was you know so he'd be going along in a straight line and i'd be up and down up and down but i had no idea you were going up but and down. see that's the problem <laughs> i had to tell him when i was up or when i was down i would have to sum because i tried giving him clues you know how a normal person would yeah. give clues of their mood you know and he could never read my clues and for a long time i misinterpreted that and the other thing that was really funny now i understand it but i didn't at first, I actually, after about a year of being married, I sent him to have his hearing checked. 
I was convinced that he had a hearing problem because so often he would ask, he would say, excuse me, or pardon me. He didn't hear what I said. And I thought, my goodness, he must have a severe hearing problem because I'm always having to repeat myself. Well, so he went to have his ears checked. There was absolutely nothing wrong with his hearing. And I thought, what is that about? So it took years to figure out. I mean, I just adapted to it. It irritated me to some extent, but I adapted to it. And we found out that in his audio processing, it takes him five or six Five or six words before I know what somebody's saying. Yeah, and then he tunes in. So I think it was reading Temple Grandin's uh, Q&A book, that right. booklet that gave us that clue. Yeah. And yeah, have you had that? No, I I haven't. But Kevin, so you asked about how things were with our relationship and such. Ali yeah. and I have been communicating for over a month on the internet and hadn't got to meet in person. So that kind of changes our dynamic a little bit. And yeah. so when I drove to Atlanta from short first time here, we'd had all this physical expectation coming, and so. Yeah, we, we did kiss on our first date together, and uh, I I probably agree with with Doctor Ross. I mean, if if I had a hard time learning anything about it, um, I didn't seem to think I needed to learn too much more. But I'm but there was no hesitancy to keep giving further lessons just in case, you know. I I, I mean, let's, let's face it, Doctor Ross, it's one of the best topics to study, isn't it? <laughs> Well, I've learned a lot about myself since being on the spectrum because, I mean, Mm -hmm. all the years I was growing up, I I knew I had handicaps Mm -hmm. and everybody else around me seemed to be able to get through them. And it was just such a hard thing for me to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I remember in the early years of our marriage, really wanting to find some way I could emotionally connect better with Kathy. But it's like everything I was trying just wasn't working. And so everything else I do, I managed to make progress. Why am I not making progress here? Um, but then when we, our therapist friend said, you know, you need to take these tests. I uh, took the test and says, oh, this is why I've been failing. And I need to change what I'm doing. And so we've had a lot more success since then. Because now I'm trying to uh, overcome these handicaps in ways that actually work rather than doing things that were doomed to fail. So, mm-hmm. and my sons noticed too, because uh, my sons just thought, well, I remember I was particularly hurt by the fact that her older boy uh, thought I didn't like him. And it's like, I thought you were always mad at him. thought I was always mad at him because uh, I wasn't emotionally expressive with my face. It was just flat all the time. And, uh, you know, that really concerned me. I, I really wanted to be able to connect with him. Uh, but, you know, now that our sons are in their 20s, it's a lot better. And I tell people, hey, if you're a parent with a child that's on the spectrum, your relationship will be great when they're one year old. Babies. Yeah, babies. I mean, that's fine because babies just throw their emotions out there. It's not going to be so hard to read them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, when they get to be about 8, 9, 10, especially the teenage years, those are going to be the difficult years. But wait till they hit their 20s. They're going to see things really come back. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've noticed that with, uh, you know, parents are on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
No, just being patient, realizing it will work out. Just keep loving your children. They won't realize it when they're in their teenage years, but there will come a time uh, when they'll be grateful uh, for everything you've been able to do for them. So how did the proposal come about? Did you pop the question here or what? I popped the question, and I realized, look, I'm just not going to be able to make this thing work uh, with Kathy meeting my parents. So we kept having these phone calls, and I basically talked to my parents, told them I was really serious about uh, Kathy. Uh, I wound up having another private meeting uh, with her parents, uh, with Kathy not there, and told them, uh, that I was interested in pursuing this relationship uh, to marriage. So I got their permission uh, to propose to Kathy. And uh, my parents said, yeah, you know, don't wait until we have a private meeting. Uh, you, you got our, our consent. We like Kathy. We've never met her. But everything, all of our phone conversations have been good. The fact that you got a green light from her parents, uh, you know, stop uh, delaying. Yeah, just go ahead. And, and so that's when it, I popped the question. I had Kathy over for dinner. And, uh, you know, I kind of got the green light a few days before Valentine's Day. And I thought that would be really corny to do it on Valentine's Day. I'm not going to do that. Everybody I know does that. That's just that's just not that's just too corny. So I purposely waited till six days after Valentine's Day. Meanwhile, Christmas came and went. New Year's came and went. Valentine's Day came and went. And I thought. I don't know if he's ever going to pop the question. I'm not even sure he's thinking marriage. <laughs> so I was like very confused at that point. So here it was, um, President's Day. In spite of the Day. fact that I was explaining to you why I was waiting, I mean. You weren't explaining why. Well, you I just said, we, hey, we can't go to Canada. You know, the Canada trip didn't work out because you well, I'll let you know issues. I was talking to your parents. No. No, you didn't. I didn't. Oh, no, I didn't. You, no, you didn't tell me that. Okay. I didn't. He was doing all this stuff in private and secret, so I was clueless. But I guess it was uh, President's Day. It was. Pre- uh, we got together for dinner on our typical night. We we're just sitting there. We had dinner, and we we're sitting on the couch uh, talking. And he just, uh, out of the blue, turned to me and he asked me if I would do him the honor of being his wife <laughs> and I was like well well yes <laughs> and it was just like okay <laughs> it was just no no big romantic setup or anything it was just your typical uh, meal together that we had many times and uh, it was it was just uh, kind of comical but it was it was fun we then we then drove to my parents house and then met with them and said hey he asked and I said yes and finally my visa issues got settled I I had an H1 visa and so that's when we're actually able to go to Canada at Easter time we were able to go to Canada and meet your parents and that was a bit scary for you I remember Nick yeah that that was definitely because you know he's the the, the number one son, the only son in the family, the oldest, their pride and joy. Mm-hmm. And I knew they wanted him to marry a Canadian girl so that he would live near them. And here he is proposing marriage to this American. In fact, they called me a Yank. Mm-hmm. Even I mean, I'm in California, right? To me, a Yank is a New Yorker, but not to them, it's any American. 
And so uh, we we arrive at uh, in Vancouver. We get a taxi from the airport to his parents' house. As we drive up to his parents' house, his mother, his father, his aunt, his uncle, his sister, his brother-in-law, his other sister, uh, cousins, all, uh, and cousins, they were all lined up um, on the front porch as our taxi drove up. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I was so intimidated. But, uh, at any rate, I just thought, well, well I'm just going to smile and hope they approve. I like to remind when at this point you're listening to a Deeper Wireless podcast. We got Hugh and Kathy Ross here talking about Asperger's and marriage. But if you're here next week, we're going to have Ted Wright on talking about archaeology and how it relates to the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Topics like the Exodus, the Conquest, is there any archaeological evidence that these events happen? So if you, you're interested in archaeology, come back next week to join us with Ted Wright here. But for now, let's get back to. Hugh and Kathy. Well, Kathy, I can tell you on my end, though, I mean, like, you know, things move quick for us, and I'm pretty much kind of, I tell my parents, this is what I plan on doing, and I'm doing it. And I do, I mean, when I decide it was time for me to move into an apartment, I, I just, we, we kind of discussed them out when I came home one day and said, hey, I just put down some money on an apartment. <laughs> and that was it. And then I just called and said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to propose to Allie, okay? And I don't think I care about being corny because I proposed on Christmas Eve. And, <laughs> and I would have loved that, Nick. Frankly, I would have loved that. But uh, he, he, I guess, did not think that was good. Well, yeah, it's quite amusing because Al and I would sometimes talk on AOL Instant Messenger back in those days and such. Yes. And the, she was messaging me one day, and I was on the phone with her parents at the same time. And she was kind of in the mindset of saying, I just don't know if you're ever going to propose to me or not. And I was on the phone with her parents getting the blessing for my proposal to <laughs> so I, I was like, guys, I, I was like, if, if you can, seriously, guys, before you propose, I do always consider it good form. Get the blessing of the parents first. Right. Absolutely, Nick. Absolutely. But I'm cracking up to to realize that Allie had the same question in her mind that I had in mind. It's like, what what's happening here? He's not getting around to the question. So I'm. It's like, are you going to do this? But I was not as bold as Allie to actually speak up and and ask. Kathy, uh, uh, you got to talk to my wife sometime and hear about some of the dating stories and such. You would absolutely love it. But, um, so, um, you get married, and uh, what's it like, especially for you, Dr. Ross, on Spectrum, getting used to married life? Because now you have to be close to someone so much. I mean, you even have to share the same bed with someone. I mean, it, it, it's just a huge thing to get used to. It wasn't difficult because, you know, we had known one another uh, for so two years before we even dated. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a lot of, you know, we, um, can you the relationship start, can you start was already. We have the same thing happen again. I don't know what's going on today. Okay. 
No, it wasn't that difficult for me, Nick, because we had such a long relationship with one another, mm-hmm. uh, more than two years as friends and as ministry partners. Almost three. And then uh, we were dating, and uh, we dated uh, for a oh, year and a month mm-hmm. before we got married. And during the whole dating process, we maintained our ministry partnership. And uh, you know, I remember we got married in the church. Everybody saw this as a union of two ministries and uh, you know, two sets of families and two churches for that matter. So, uh, and you know, I knew I could trust Kathy. Uh, so there wasn't any confusion in that area. I mean, I was very confident in the fact that she loved me and uh, I knew that she knew that I loved her. Although after we were married, there were times I'm wondering, gee, I'm, am I really expressing to Kathy in ways that make sense to her that I really care and love her? Because there'd be times when she'd say, hey, you know, uh, uh, what's going on here? And again, it was just not knowing what's happening with people on the spectrum. Uh, there were times of confusion. Uh, but I think, you know, I, th- I think what helped, too, is we had a good honeymoon uh, before we settled in. Yeah. Um, and there were some four weeks. Yeah, because uh, you know we came back for a honeymoon. There was a uh, we were teaching at a college uh, college, briefing, college conference. briefing conference, and they gave us a cabin mm-hmm. we spent time in. So uh, where'd you go on your honeymoon? Well, we spent the first couple of weeks in Hawaii. Nice. And then we spent another week up in the Sierras. My uncle owned a big beautiful cabin up in the sonora pass area so we spent a week there so that was three weeks and then after that we had this week at college briefing conference where we had a little cabin to ourselves there so um that was it was during the summer i didn't have to go back to uh, to teaching until after that so we had a good four weeks or more to really adjust to to married life to having no other responsibilities mm-hmm. except to spend time with each other and i think that was really but the really biggest helpful. adjustment i remember was like in the first week of our marriage that's yeah. when i learned okay uh i need to change the way i'm communicating with you because there's there a couple of times when there was a big misunderstanding. Well, yes. I mean, we would be intimate, and then your conversation would immediately switch to politics or... <laughs> or and I would be like, what? Or your emotions. You know, I'd be very emotionally sensitive. Yeah, he, he kind of killed the mood, didn't he? You know, yeah, yeah. It was like, what? So it, that was that was a bit hurtful, and then I, so I was like, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> oh, that 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 is just so funny to hear. I mean, I, I I've never heard the the case of uh, talking about politics after intimacy. That's that's a new one. Yeah, but I, I'm guessing awesome or or, or astrophysics. Yes, yeah, something. So. You yeah, get the. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could understand saying something's out of this world, but I don't think that's what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, right, right. No, yeah. It's, it's very different. Now, now, Kathy, on the spectrum, many of us tend to be obsessive with our interests and such. Did you? Do you think that Dr. Ross uh, can be obsessive with his interests with you sometimes, too? Uh, well, in this case, I would say no. He was not obsessive with interest in in me. So I think 
again, he had such a, an obsessive interest in his his studies that I think that probably made me well, sometimes feel a little second fiddle. Yeah, but I think you were surprised at how much I would prepare mm-hmm. uh, for our vacation adventures. Mm-hmm. Especially when we would go up into the Canadian mountains. It's like, look at all this stuff that you're getting together and how you're planning this in detail. And uh, so I think that surprised you. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to make sure everything was... And I also realized that you're much bigger of an adventurer than I am, so I began to worry about uh, that you might get hurt. So, because I'm a risk taker when it comes to hiking and climbing and whatever, and, and Hugh was always worried that I was getting too close to the edge or taking too many risks, and that that surprised me. I think one of the big adjustments was that I'm very flexible, adaptable. I, I don't have a strict routine. Hugh is very routine, very routine. Mm-hmm. That was very uh, strange to me, and it was hard to adapt to that, I think. Just your pattern of living is very much the same from, from day to day to day, except you have to travel a lot. You have to learn to be adaptable. But anyway, I just, yeah. I think it threw you just just the discipline. I mean, the fact that, you know, okay, these are the 40 minutes in which I'm going to do physical exercise. And it's like, you know, I got to do it every day, and it's got to be at a certain time, and it's got to be at a certain intensity. And uh, so I think that kind of threw you. So... And also just the way I did my studies. The other thing that was really funny is that he sometimes he wasn't reading his own feelings. Um, He would become anxious about something, and he wasn't aware that he was anxious. And so I would carry his anxiety within me, or he would be very stressed, I guess, about something, and he didn't. He wasn't aware of his own stress, and I would end up carrying his stress. And so it took me a while to realize, you know, we need to talk about this. That you know, Hugh, you need to acknowledge when you're feeling stress. The other thing that would happen is that I would become very uh, critical of him. I mean, really critical and picking away, and then realizing he realized that when i was doing that i was actually going through a time of being very critical of myself and being unaware of my self-criticism i would sort of take it out on him so you know we've had a lot of learning to do about how we how we respond to each other and um so it, it's been I, I just find it fascinating Nick and, and I think you and your wife Allie probably do too that being being married to somebody who's really different from you uh, and it, it's very it's interesting it's never it's not boring we're always having mm-hmm. try to figure out what's going on and we both love to learn and we both are interested in what makes people tick i was at before i was an english major i was a psychology major and this is comical too is that our uh, our son is a, a neuropsychologist or he's in training to be a neuropsychologist and his 
wife, new bride, is also a, a licensed professional counselor, or she's getting certified to be one. They both knew before, I think, Hugh did, <laughs> just what it meant for him to be on the spectrum. It's like, I think they even identified you as being Asperger's before before you knew for sure. Well, even before our uh, therapist friend uh, figured it out, uh, David had a girlfriend before. Oh, yes, before, the girl he dated. And she was the one who said, ed. you know, I think your dad's on the spectrum. Because uh, she had studied that. She told David that, but she he told didn't David tell that. us. He yeah. didn't tell us, no. Yeah. That's pretty. Now, Kathy, I'm curious also. Did you marry a romantic? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. I, I heard Dr. Ross about you know preparing for all your adventures and trips and things like that. And I, I know that when it comes to Valentine's Day, anniversary, and her birthday, I'm usually going all out planning everything I can because I want everything to be just excellent. Well, I think Hugh is, is probably more romantic than I am. He remembers dates and he writes very beautiful messages like I never get a card from Hugh that's just signed uh, or that's just a, a funny you know a little comical card or if he does get me a funny card he also gets me a very serious romantic card and writes a note on it and he has this is one of the challenges though Nick I don't know how you do Oh, yes. One of the big challenges with Hugh is that he has a very hard time discerning what I really like mm. and, and what to get for me. And so um, he, he, for a long time, tried to just think about what his mom liked mm-hmm. and you know, what kinds of things his dad would give to his mom. And so her taste was very different from mine and her interest very different from mine. So he would get something and think this is going to be great, but it would be something that was not to my taste or it wasn't something I really wanted. And I felt terrible because he would be so disappointed to know that he tried so hard, but he missed the mark by a mile. So after a while, um, he just started saying, you know, what would you, what would you like? And then I will, you know. Well, I learned that uh, I can't buy her jewelry. I can't buy her clothes. I mean, even when I go to like exotic places, I remember coming back from uh, going through New Zealand one of my ministry trips and they had this incredible uh, exotic jewelry that you can't get anywhere else in the world beautiful blue color and I says I'll get Kathy some earrings well she looked at him and said nah it's not my taste Uh, now mind you I do like clothes and jewelry but the style issue is where where we went off you know where where he got off because his mom had a very different taste in the style of jewelry. So now I just asked her, I mean, yeah. so, you know, I, I'd like to get you some jewelry or some yeah. clothes. Mm-hmm. But you come with me and we'll pick it out. Yeah. Because I realize. That works much better for us. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, but you talk about writing, how you write semesters. I mean, you and I have been Facebook friends for a while. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but I don't post on Facebook on Sundays, but every other day, I post a love message to Ari every single day, along with a marriage meme. But I, I, I've had some wives, I mean, you know, my husband hates you right now because you're always going on and on now and such. And when it comes to gifts for her, it's usually pretty easy because... I just remember she mentioned seeing something at a store, something that she really, really want, and I'll make a mental note of it. And sometimes, what she'll say, she'll say, well, I'll say, we don't have the money here, but I don't tell her, but I do have money in Amazon credit, because I do things to get gift cards and such, and she really likes Pokemon, and so she saw this one at a store once that she wanted, and there's nine different forms of this one and she looked and she was so eager I said honey we don't have the money with us right now we can't do this and she was so disappointed I went home got straight on Amazon and ordered her a, a thing that had they, they were all small but it had all nine of them in it and that shows up at the door about a week or so later so I, I, I always learn now that if she uh, she needs to be very careful sometimes about what saying what kind of things she wants around me because I will go out and get... I mean, not too long ago, she posted this picture of this... Uh, the lamp, the rose thing from Beauty and the Beast, but there's a lamp version of it. And so it'd be so good to have this. I look on Amazon immediately and say, how much does this cost? Okay. Or going up the game stories and said, and... Uh, she saw a video game she wanted to play and said, I don't know if it's on the PlayStation, which is what we have. And mm-hmm. I get on my phone while we're walking around, because we're at the mall, and I see digital code. Talk to one of my friends, my former roommate. Hey, what does this digital code thing mean? Well, uh, it means you can go and purchase it, and you can upload it directly to your game system there, and it's just like you bought the game. Okay, thanks. Get home. Purchase it. Have enough Amazon credit. Load it up. Here you go, baby. <laughs> Nick. You don't realize this, but you're very unusual. <laughs> and right now, Hugh is probably wishing he had not agreed to be on this podcast. <laughs> he does not have this capacity that you obviously have to make mental note of what your wife no, really making likes. making mental notes is not my thing. Uh, Moreover, we should tell him about your trips to the grocery store. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Well, the other thing is, yeah, I I really like to give Kathy surprise gifts. Uh She's told me over and over again, "Don't surprise me! Don't surprise me!" (laughs) We need to talk over first. But after forty years of marriage, I finally succeeded in a surprise gift. It took forty years, but just a couple of weeks ago, it actually happened. Mm -hmm. I said, "You know what?" I've been frustrated all these years trying to surprise her with a gift. None of it's worked. She's told me never to do it, but i got to give it one more shot before I completely give up. So, It's the moon. The yeah. floating moon. But I did it. I had to order it from Britain, um, and it took, what, five weeks to get here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a moon, and it's an exact replica. I mean, all it's accurate in terms of the craters and the mountains on the moon. Uh, but it's got a magnet in the back, and it's got a base where it actually floats in midair, rotates, and, and changes out. colors. As you know, it's got a light inside, and it said, "Well, I me." Mean, at the worst worst case scenario, 
uh, this will be a nightlight. I figure, you know, that, that's the worst that can happen. But maybe she'll really like it. Who knows? So I love it. Turns out she loves it. He's he's scared on that one. But honestly, I I don't trust him because when when we were all through the years of our marriage, um, I would he would be so kind. I mean, this was nice. He would be kind enough to do a grocery run for me if I was making a meal, and it's like, oh man, to do this, I need, you know, I need some more. Um, uh, squash and I need an onion and I need this and that, you know, or something. And he would go to the store and come home with a very different list because this was on sale. I, I got this. Look, it was on sale. And I'm like, but where's, where's, what, where's what I asked for? Well, they didn't, uh, it wasn't good quality. So I got this other thing instead, or I thought this was better. And so I would be so frustrated because he had a whole different, you know, he would make substitutions for for the list. So now we have a, a, a pact where he'll ask me before he goes out the door, are there any substitutions on this? Well, I've also like, learned to no. take my cell phone with me. Yes. Because if I'm going to alter the grocery list, cell phones. I get permission first. <laughs> <laughs> I like to remind everyone at this point you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast and everything we do here is through the support of listeners like you and uh, if you want to support us go to deeperwatersapologetics.com and there you're uh, see a link help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries there's a link in there you click it you get taken to risen Jesus it's a ministry of my in-laws Mike and Debbie Lacona you make your donation then you get in touch with me or Ari or Mike or Debbie and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will give that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also buy books that I've either written or co-written. Defining Inerrancy, A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed and Today's Christian, God, Groundless, God, Natural Disasters, things like that. Or you can uh, go and you can buy jewelry, actually, through us. And we have a lady who runs a premier store. And whatever you purchase, 25% of that goes to Deeper Waters. You just get in touch with me if you want details on how to do that. And guys, I, like I always tell you, you can buy something special of that lady in your life to make up for that big screw-up that you recently did with her. Or you can buy something special of that lady in your life to make up for that big screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. And guys, also keep in mind, it doesn't have to just be your wife or girlfriend, Mother's Day is coming up. Mothers like that stuff too. And if you can't do any of these things, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review of a Deeper Waters podcast. I'd love to see them. Now, Dr. Ross and Mrs. Ross, do you have an organization you'd like to see people donate to? Well, we're the founders of Reasons to Believe. We founded that organization nearly 33 years ago. Uh, the website's reasons.org. That's where you can get all kinds of uh, science faith material mm-hmm. to help in your evangelism. And hey, during this month, if you go to reasons.org slash cc, you'll get a free chapter of a book we just released a month ago, The Crater in the Cosmos. It's a chapter where I discuss Stephen Hawking, his research, and the philosophical implications of his research. The theological implications. Mm-hmm. Theological implications. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. guessing it it was probably a bit hard when you heard that he passed away. Yes, it did. 
page Caltech. Uh, you know, what struck me is that he had a mischievous streak in him. So I wrote about that, and uh, people really liked it. And uh, so I said, hey, I'm going to give away uh, this chapter. Uh, so, because that's where I write about how, even though he wasn't a Christian, uh, his research substantially strengthened the case uh, for the Christian concept of Christian teaching on cosmology. Well, I'd like to say something else back to the surprises thing and such, because uh, I, I think one of the benefits of being on a spectrum is we don't always express things very well. Sometimes that is a benefit because I can ha- be totally tricking Ally or something and be as straight-faced as possible the whole time. She does not know how I do it. But her 21st birthday came on a Sunday, and I told her, I'm sorry, we don't have a lot of money. There's nothing we can really do. But, like, your 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 friend, she wants you to meet at the mall and just go shopping with you, okay? And she said she, she'll meet you at the church office because our church met at the mall. We had a store at the mall as well that was our office area and such. And I said, we'll just go there that evening. And she was so depressed all day long. She couldn't get to do anything for her birthday. And we got there, and she comes around, and right there in the office is all her friends and such from the church waiting there for a surprise birthday party for her. And I'd even had people make video messages for her who couldn't be there, like her parents, the Habermasses, and others, wishing her a happy birthday. Everyone in the church knew about this except for her. And, and her dad even said later on, yeah, so you can say, you know what, you had two parties that day. You had the pity party you threw for yourself all day and the birthday party that you got to enjoy. So I think ever since then she's learned, do not ever question my husband on this kind of thing because he does not forget these things and he will have a surprise for me. (laughs) That's a great story, Nick. That's a great story. Now, you talk about how you've had some some misunderstandings and such when you got started because looking at you two, I, I see a very happy couple together and such. But what happens when storm clouds show up? I mean, I'm sure they do sometimes. How do you all handle disagreements and arguments and such? Well, our sons always say, Mom, Dad, do you guys ever fight? We never see you fighting. And we said, well, we do fight, but we fight over theology. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, Hugh stays very calm, which helps. When we have disagreements, he's able to stay very calm while I get more emotional but um, we usually probably the hardest thing is that it takes him so long to figure out that I'm upset about something (laughs) two days about two days days, so (laughs) you know because my clue but I keep having to remind myself that he's not reading my clues and I have to be very direct Mm -hmm. and then I have to let him know that I need to talk and that I need for him to just listen. I remember having to tell him, I need you just, this is probably just typical male-female stuff, but I had to tell him, just listen while I, don't fix it, just listen. Mm-hmm. And he, I'm feeling. Um, I think the biggest challenge is that Hugh has difficulty with empathy, um, especially since I tend to get uh, a down 
and I have a little, ever since I was a child, I struggled to some extent with depressive tendencies. Mm-hmm. And he never, ever got depressed, I don't think, in his life. I don't think he knows what that feeling is. So for him to try to be, to, to show empathy when I was feeling depressed or down about something or discouraged was really hard, really hard. And so there have been times or you know, and I just felt super disappointed about something. And he he wouldn't feel that same level or didn't even understand how that could be so disappointing. I remember that that was really tough. So what I learned to do was to create some maybe some word pictures to try to connect with a time in his life that somehow resembled, you know, what I was experiencing so that he could kind of get an idea from me as to what that felt like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you remember when you were giving this presentation and someone said you were, you know, totally misunderstood it and thought you were undermining confidence in the Word of God? Do you remember how that stung? Or do you remember how it felt when... You know, your parents said this and you were trying to do that. And it's so if I could come up with analogies to try to help him feel what I was feeling, it would it would be helpful. But I'm not well, always really good at doing that. We I've just, also been explaining to her, it's not that I don't have empathy. There's a huge time lag on it. You, know, you need to give me time to be able to express what you're wanting me to express. And I told other people on the spectrum, too, you need to let people know it's not that you don't have emotions, it's that they're delayed. Mm-hmm. Now, that really helps when I'm doing a debate, because I don't realize till two hours after the debate is over that I've been insulted. <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you, two hours after the debate, I'm really feeling the emotional hurt of what happened. I just don't feel it right there. And likewise, when Kathy's expressing these emotions, it takes me a couple of hours to be able to process what I'm hearing and seeing. You're like deer in the headlights. And then when I do come across and figure it out and express it, it's like, phew, it's too late. It's like, <laughs> but I can tell you this, every year we've been married, it's gotten better. Yeah. I mean, there's been real progress with every single year. In fact, I often tell couples, because some of you guys, as a pastor, as well as an astronomer, I get to do, officiate marriages. And says, if you really have your marriage on a solid spiritual footing, your first year of marriage will be the worst year of your marriage life. Mm-hmm. It's going to get better and better and better from that point onward. And yet, typically, the first year is a good year. Mm-hmm. But just to encourage a couple, hey, if you're on this spiritual footing where you make God part of your marriage, it literally will get better every single year. And that's what I think is so exciting about being a Christian. You know, our bodies may be decaying as we age, uh, but spiritually there's this blessing, and it's a thrill to get old. I mean, I mean, every year it gets better, and it's like I can't wait till we graduate from this life and go on to the next life. I'm not so thrilled as you are about getting old, but mm-hmm. I hear what you're saying. I do agree. Well, Dr. Ross, how many years has it been? It's been 40, 40 years, years that we've been married. Wow, as as impressive. 40 and you are so you and Allie are just in the early stages as I gather I mean I don't know exactly how old you are well I am now 37 
And she is 27, so yes, I robbed that crater big time. Yeah, you guys are so young. <laughs> this July, we were celebrate eight years together. And Congratulations. I, I, I remember recently riding with someone because I had a flat tire, and so I had to call AAA and have someone come and tell me to... Uh, or a motor place, and we started talking about marriage somewhere, because right? you mentioned having a fiancé, so I decided to start saying, well, you're going to be getting married, and because marriage is one of my favorite topics to talk about. And he uh-huh. said, how long have you all been married? He said, we've been married nearly eight years. Said, wow, that's a long time. And I'm going, I kind of appreciate the compliment, but it's kind of sad when you tell me that being married for nearly eight years is a long time. Yeah, that's to us, that's just in the beginning. You're just in the early stages. But you know what's sad is eight years is above the American average oh, for, yeah. the, for the marriage. That's what's sad. Oh. Now, now, you all do have kids. Has there been any concern about any of the kids being on the spectrum or anything like that? Uh, no, they're, neither one of them. Far from it. <laughs> well, they're not on the spectrum, but our older son had a um, traumatic birth and there, he definitely had neuromotor challenges and other challenges. He just, he's very, very different. And um, he's not on the spectrum, but he's always had, he's had struggles. He's well, struggled one thing he shares things. in common with me, when I was uh, a child, I had problems controlling certain muscles. Mm-hmm. I'm not at all athletic. Uh, in fact, mm-hmm. I was last chosen for a sports team I almost failed grade one because I couldn't hold a pencil mm-hmm. I couldn't prove that I understood the reading and the math and I saw this in her older son too is that he had muscle issues growing up it took him a while mm-hmm. before he really was able to yeah the odd thing there is he had great fine motor skills yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, I, I could never... Do you have issues with... With motor skills? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and you have a back issue, too. Yeah. When I was in school and going through physical education, I remember that I could n- never do the sit-and-reach test, for instance. Oh. And if some, if I had to... We had to call someone down there who could hold my knees down because mm. I could not keep my knees straight. Mm. And even after we did that, it'd be about six or eight inches. And again, I was horrible at most every single sport I played, except possibly because I'm so small and tiny, I could do dodgeball pretty well. Not throwing, but I could have three or four people trying to hit me. I could just weave every single way that I needed to. And <laughs> it'd take a concentrated effort just to take me down. And that was about the only thing I could do, I'd say. Way to go, Nick. Yeah. Playing strengths. That's what you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but for my motor skills, yeah, I'm not really the best with my hands. I'd say the most I use them is playing video games and things like that and sorts. And I, I'd say for me, the main hurdle that Ali and I have to deal with, with me, especially, is when it comes to my diet. I mean, I, it, I know it's Dr. Ross doesn't seem to have any of these problems. I mean, talk about fixing Korean chicken livers or whatever and such. I, I probably would have panicked at that point if that had happened to me. But I, I have a very restrictive diet, and I only eat foods that I can eat with my hands right now. And that's something I always working with me on. We did have a case 
not too long ago, it was a Christmas party with our church and the small group leader where um, Ari had asked me, Nick, please stop seeing me on the corner reading your book. Get up here and socialize some. Have have a snack. Fine, (laughs) fine. Just... I don't know why you want me to do this. I'm sitting here. I'm happy with my book. Thank you, but okay. And I get up and I start having something. And the lady, Andy, who's hosting the party, and she's a great lady. We get along great now, and so she always have. But <clears throat> this time she makes a mistake. She sees me outside and she says, Oh, Nick, you're eating something. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. And she runs straight up to me and is so happy. And I freeze immediately. And Allie is laughing some for a little bit, and then she stops and says, wait, wait, wait. This isn't a joke going on. This is something else. And she can tell immediately she explains that he's very self-conscious when it comes to eating. I can eat in front of other people. I'm very self-conscious if someone makes a big deal about it. And it took me a while just to be able to eat in front of other people. And I, I can tell you, for the rest of that evening, I was pretty much miserable. Just playing the whole thing over and over and having to be there and lean on Ari the whole time and such. And kind of thinking, yeah, I, I kind of wish we could just go straight home right now. So yeah, that's kind of what it's like for us. Wow. Well, the thing that's interesting about Hugh, Hugh's diet is just so different. I actually don't do a lot of cooking for the two of us. I used to do more than I do now, but Hugh has certain foods that he he likes, and he eats for, uh, I'd say he eats with his brain and not with his taste buds, mm-hmm. because his brain tells him, this is good for you, you know, like, eat raw kale, it's good for you, eat lentils, it's good. So he eats according to what is nutritious for him, and he actually enjoys foods that nobody else enjoys. Mm -hmm. And he will not eat butter or sauce or salad dressing. He eats even a baked potato. He'll eat it with maybe some chives, but he'll eat it just straight up with no butter or a sauce of any kind and his meat like if i'm having uh, salmon i like to have some you know some sauce with it or whatever he he does not want ever any sauce or, or anything creamy or whatever and no butter and so he has this his own foods that he eats and those are the foods he likes and the, the food that the rest of the world enjoys is you know, he just, he doesn't like it. So it's, it is kind of peculiar. And when we go places, uh, I always try to, like, if, if the cook, whoever's cooking or providing food, if they ask if you has any prefer food allergy, often people ask you now that if you have any food allergies, and I'll just say, um, no food allergies in particular, but Hugh especially likes vegetables and fruit and no sauce mm. so it's it's a way for us to get something for him to eat that you know he can he can eat and enjoy but well i remember uh talking to these people or because i was engaging a lot of these people around the spectrum and they said we noticed that you're all slim uh how do you explain that and i said well we don't eat for taste uh, again, that's our brains. Okay, what's good for my body? 
what's healthy, what's nutritious. I'll eat that. Uh, and, you know, you don't overeat. So it's like, yeah, almost everybody I know is on the spectrum. Uh, you know, has slim. they're slim, but it's because they're not like normal people mm. in the way they eat. Well, yeah. I, I can't say I'm one who prefers healthy eating. It's just I've always been restricted, but I just don't eat a lot. And to my wife, I'm a never-ending mystery because like, how is it that you eat so little, but you seem to constantly be full of energy? You can just do anything and go anywhere and such. But for me, most of my oddities are around food because if... Mm. Allie gets done eating something and she's got like a plate or a paper plate there and she wants me to take it to the kitchen for her and it's got a single crumb on there. Just mm-hmm. a single crumb. I will carry it like it's biohazard waste. I can't even look and such. And we go to Celebrate Recovery on Tuesday nights and if they have food in there that I think is messy, there's a main eating room before the fellowship hall where everyone goes for the service and things like that and such. If that's in there... I I can't go in really because I just get grossed out immediately and I feel so much mental pressure and such like that is I'm staying outside okay I mean I I, I once said me up when me recently said why aren't you going in there I said the food's messy so, oh okay she is the only person who I think would have understood what I meant by that yes. Yes, and I do recall, this is one of the things I recalled when uh, when we were later figuring out about Hugh being on the spectrum, I remembered a story that his mom told me once about when Hugh was a baby and, and then a toddler, how he could not handle having his food mixed touch. together. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if there were two different or three different kinds of food on the plate, they had to be discreet. They had to be in separate. If they touched or mixed, he just cried and cried and cried. And even though he was very hungry because he has a very high metabolism, he would not eat it. In fact, I think he went without food a couple of days once when he was little because she was trying to break him of this, what she considered to be some kind of stubbornness, you know, and, and, it didn't work. So she basically made sure that his food stayed separate on the plate. And even now, when he'll eat a meal, I'll look over and think how peculiar he's eating. I like to take a bite of this and a bite of that and a bite of this. If there are three different food items on my plate, I actually enjoy it. You would you would have a hard time, Nick, because I enjoy mixing them up. Whereas Hugh will eat all of this particular food item first, and then he will eat all of this other food item second, and then all of this other one. That so he doesn't mix them together, um, and so it's it's still a very distinct way. I think it's not that it's the same for each person on the spectrum, but I think each person on the spectrum has his own food issues. Food peculiarities. Yeah. The, yeah. Your specific, you know, uh, uh, relationship with eating and food and how it looks and and how it's presented and how it the texture of it and and the quantity of it. Well, it's like our staff different. always jokes when we have a staff meal together that Hugh eats the decoration. Yeah. yeah. So we'll eat yeah. the part 
Yeah, I can't. I can't say I've ever had any issue with foods touching you, but that's because I usually only have one thing. Period. When I have a meal, so it's not a problem. Thing at a time, because that's obviously very strong reaction for you. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, we're we're all very different on the spectrum and such. And you know, more you keep talking about this. I can't but wonder if you have ever seen the show Monk before. Yes. 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 Because I honestly consider that if I was the Monk figure, which a lot of people can think of me as, Ari is my Natalie or Sharona, whatever it is. Do you always see that same dynamic going on with you two? We we totally relate to that, Nick. Totally relate to that. Oh, that's so funny that you like that show because I have often told Hugh that being on the spectrum is a little like being OCD. Uh, Well, I remember my parents thought I was OCD because all I would do is study astronomy and physics. In fact, it got so frustrating for them, they eventually bought our family a book on evolutionary biology because they wanted to break me of this habit of only studying astronomy and physics. And I was the only one in the family that read the book they bought. So I remember telling them, Mom, Dad, the numbers don't add up. There's all this speciation before humanity and none afterwards. And I tell people it was six years later when I picked up a Bible for the first time it answered that issue why there's all the speciation before and not afterwards so yeah being OCD about astronomy and physics it also actually helped me uh, when I first picked up the bible I'm kind of curious also since you said you watched Monk since you're so on the spectrum and being much being very intellectually gifted did you have any cases many times where you would solve the case before Monk did or what uh, yeah, there were times I got I figured it out. So <laughs> I would ask you, Nick, how do you? Uh, you know, you're a romantic, obviously, and um, when you see movies together with Allie, do you ex- do you experience emo- an emotional reaction? Uh, I, I'm asking because I found it so interesting. We don't go to theater often, very often at all. It's too expensive, and the shows are usually terrible. But a, a few times we we would go to a movie, and I do remember especially seeing the movie about Temple Grandin, mm-hmm. and uh, and then there was another one, The Secret. Was it called The Secret Garden? Anyway, at the end of the film. Hugh would be in tears. Tears would be running down his face. And I figured out that he would become, he would react emotionally to a movie much more deeply in many cases than I would. And I was always a little nonplussed by that. I thought, that is so interesting. And I just wondered if you ever had that experience where you reacted to a movie that you watched or a program that you watched and it just really hit you emotionally and brought you to tears. Uh, Yeah. One case I can definitely remember was um, when I was in college, Smallville was my favorite show on TV at the time. Young Clark Kent growing up. I'm not sure if you ever saw it, but it was my favorite. And when they hit, have a 100th episode, 
said there was going to be a major death on the show. It seems like an odd way to celebrate your 100th episode, but that's where it was going to happen. And my dad and I watched this one together. We watched the whole show together religiously. And we even have a joke that my grandmother lived next door to us at the time. And she called us once. And my mom answered her phone. She said, they can't talk to you right now. They're having their time together watching their show. And she said, well, um, um, tell them I'm having a heart attack. And, and, we, and our response was, yeah, um, call her an ambulance. We'll be there after the show's over, okay? <laughs> but when this 100th episode came, it had that uh, Clark Kent's dad, Jonathan Kent, died in the end. And to me, Jonathan Kent was kind of one of the greatest dads ever on television. And I was so sad when I saw him die on there and I went to bed that night in my room before going to bed and I came up and said are you going to be okay and I said yeah I'm going to be okay but I honestly didn't know at that point because I mean I, I went to bed and I think I don't know if I am going to be okay I mean it, this doesn't make sense to me I, I don't understand it I mean, the next day I woke up and I was fine. I was able to go about the day and such. But yeah, I I get really caught up in TV shows and things like that. If I start watching them, it's just I, I it's easy for me to get drawn into the world. Yeah, yeah. And so you obviously had a very strong emotional reaction. A very sad. Uh, for Hugh, it's uh, anything that involves reconciliation. Mm. Where, where a broken relationship becomes resolved in some way, and it, that always brings him to tears, mm. whatever it is. And, and it's just, I mean, I, I, that's, I've had enough time. Obviously, I've been married for 40 years to finally figure out the pattern is what it, what brings him to tears at the end of a film or a TV show or whatever. And it's always, it's, it's always for him. Yeah reconciliation and for you it was the the death of someone that you looked up to and thought was you know lost it was the loss that brought you to tears and for him it's somehow this reconciliation thing but yeah it's it's really a strong reaction it's more than the, the typical reaction for yeah. yeah well for me is i mean it sounds egotistical to say in some ways but I saw a lot of myself and Clark Kent in there because Clark, growing up, you never consider a Superman growing up, but he was an outsider to everyone. Mm -hmm. He couldn't do sports, for instance, normally. Not for the same reason someone like Dr. Ross and I can't do him, but because, you know, you tackle someone on the field, you can kill them. That kind of thing and such. He had an unfair advantage. He couldn't do all these clubs, anything like that. He was just... He was a dork growing up in school as it were and yet he was always willing to go about and try and be the hero and do the right thing and yes always had trouble with the girl of his dreams constantly and I thought this guy I I, I, I relate to Superman growing up and so when I saw him go through the loss of someone like that who was such an awesome dad I think that hit even harder and such I you know, that's so interesting because for Hugh, seeing Temple Grandin, the movie, what, what got to him was the connection with his mom. Mm-hmm. He felt like 
Temple did, like this odd child whose relatives and people around said, you know, she needs to be institutionalized. And it was her mom that stood up for her and always worked to protect her and to let her be mm-hmm. herself. And Hugh remembers that when he was little, his parents' friends would say, that kid is retarded, he needs to be institutionalized, or, you know, and he was made fun of at school, but he remembered that his mom always stood up for him, always believed in him, always was an ally for him. And so when he saw that same example in the Temple Grandin film, like you, he just really connected with that emotionally. Mm. It it meant so, it was deep. Yeah, it made me realize how much I owed to my parents that Mm -hmm. everybody in their life was saying, you know, Hugh's mentally retarded, he needs to be institutionalized. Uh, Why do you still have him in the home here? Why are you trying to send him to a, a, a regular school? And uh, how they just resolutely said, no, we're going to raise him like a normal child. And uh, we know he's not mentally retarded. Uh, Yeah, he's not talking. But look, he's doing science experiments here. So uh, they They protected protected me. They believed in me. When I saw that in Temple Grandin's mother, it just made me incredibly grateful uh, for my parents. Yeah, and cried for half an hour straight. Yeah. Couldn't talk. Um, Dr. Ross, we are getting near the end, so let me ask this. Exactly how essential is Kathy to what you're doing today? Oh, well, she's critical in the sense I wouldn't be able to communicate with people and audiences mm-hmm. if it wasn't for Kathy being patient and training me on how to relate to people, how to talk to them, how to look at them, how to dress properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even, I mean, I'm still trying to figure this out. And so she watches my stage presence when I'm up in front of a crowd and says, you know, Hugh, uh, you need to get away from your computer. Uh, and I said, well, I need that computer to figure out where I am in my talk. And so I've learned, okay, I can make the images on my slides so big that I can see them from 12 feet away uh, so that I can actually walk out and uh, you know, try to engage people. And, yeah, people have noticed. They've, they've noticed how much I've improved over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, with Allie and I, I she always say you were doing apologetics long before I came along and such. I said, well, yeah, hon, I was, but when you came into my life, and definitely when you married me, everything got upped exponentially and such. My confidence level started going straight through the roof at that point and such. And it's all because you're in my life now, and that makes all the difference. I, I mean, losing I would be the worst nightmare I can think of in ministry. Yeah, I understand that. I also really appreciate the fact that, you know, when I'm, I'm speaking to people, when people meet my wife, number one, they're shocked that I was able to attract such a woman into my life. Mm. Uh, but the fact that they like her so much and they love to engage her, uh, it just makes it easier for people to receive uh, the message they're hearing from me. So I love it when we get to travel together. So, Kathy, as we're closing up, what would you say to people who are in a, as you are kind of in a mixed marriage, being with someone on the spectrum? I say just always appreciate the benefits 
and remind yourself of the benefits mm. of being married to a person with this particular uniqueness mm. and then always always take the attitude of a, of a learner and a teacher both mm. i'm always learning i have so much more to learn i want to learn from Hugh the things that he's strong at also learn how to communicate how to help him and learn how to help him i know Hugh wants to love me so i've learned to give him the benefit of the doubt but it's hard you have to remind yourself of that all the time but knowing that he wants to to show love to me then it means that i have a certain responsibility to let him know how mm. what something means to me and if i'm willing to actually take some initiative to to explain that and not just expect him to know that mm. but to to tell him what i need and how i need it and what things mean to me and what things don't um that makes all the difference for us it makes a difference for me mm. i've really appreciated that you've been doing that these last few years so thanks well um you know, it's been great having you on, and honestly, I think we could keep talking for hours and hours more. Yes, I mean, if Allie and I are ever in the California area, we have to get all four of us together sometime. I would love that. I would love that, because Nick, you and Allie are fascinating people. I love your podcast, and this conversation has been so fun. And the rest of our team would love to meet you, too. I mean, they've made yes. that clear. So if you're ever in our area, we'd love for you to come by. Excellent. Uh, headquarters. Okay. Well, um, do you all have a blog, website, and email where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yeah, I have a, a Facebook and a Twitter page. I actually answer every question I get mm -hmm. on Facebook and Twitter. So people are welcome to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. And I have a blog uh, that uh, we post mm -hmm. on our reasons.org site. Every week, I write about a new scientific discovery that gives us more evidence for the Christian faith. And I always provide a link on my Facebook page uh, to that blog. Mm -hmm. And I have an email, too. So, Nick, you know I'm, I, I respond to email at k-r-o-s-s -S at reasons.org. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you all have uh, any uh, final thoughts you'd like to leave with Deeper Waters audience today? I would say the most important thing that binds a couple together is having the same value system. Mm -hmm. if, the, if you are both pursuing the same goal, you can be as different as day and night. You can be 20 years different in age or cultural background. You can be as diverse as can be. But if you are aiming toward the same goal in life, and you share that same high value on, say, for us, it's uh, the value is advancing the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. um, there, nothing can pull you apart. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ross, anything you'd like to say? Yeah, namely that uh, if you're both committed uh, to serving the Lord, every year of your marriage will get better than the year before. Mm -hmm. And you see yourselves becoming more productive, not only in meeting one another's needs, uh, but also in serving the community that God's called you to. So, and you're also going to be able to figure out exactly what God, what kind of ministry you should be in. Mm -hmm. uh, Mary DeCathy's really helped me really focus on uh, where I should be spending my time. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I'd like to thank both of you for coming on. It's been such a blast here, and I do hope we'll see you both back again in some time. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having us. And say hi to Alec for me. Definitely. Alec Miner, when next week we're going to have Ted Wright on talking about archaeology in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, the Exodus, the Conquest, things like that. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I am signing off. It all started with a small-time dream. Hold a conference in a church. With a small budget, could we afford to bring in a Christian celebrity speaker? And with an ear to hear more than just the same canned messages, do we want to? With these two questions, The Mentionables were born. We found the best under-the-radar Christian apologists that we could find. Writers, podcasters, and bloggers. Their voice was small, but their message was huge. On May 18th and 19th, The Mentionables will be appearing in Greensboro. Head out to Greensboro Christian Church and hear this grassroots phenomena in action, featuring talks and a great debate. Head over to thementionables.org to get your tickets, or call Greensboro Christian Church at 336-621-5226. The Mentionables. Small-time voices, big-time noise.